Welcome to Digging Deeper in Grace, a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Our goal each episode is to dig deeper into the scriptures with a focus on our most recent sermon. And now let's dig deeper. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Digging Deeper in Grace. I'm your host, Bart Sheridan, and wherever, whenever, however you're listening to us today, we're glad you're with us. And I'm very pleased to welcome to the microphones two gentlemen with whom I've become very acquainted over the past 16 years in one case. I think I counted that right, Brian Hanson. You did, Hansen. you did count and, and six years or so for Adam Hammett. Uh, it's great to have you guys with me. I know uh, they have agreed to join us to discuss this passage from Revelation chapter 2, the letter to the church at Pergamum. So I'm going to start with you, Adam, if you don't mind. Tim Cockrell's been uh, doing a good job sharing very faithfully Jesus's messages to the seven churches here in Revelation. And I don't know about you, but I, especially with the message to the churches or the messages to the churches there at Ephesus and Pergamum, I'm seeing a lot of relevance to me, and I think I know you guys well enough, I can say to us, can you share some of the ways that these messages to these three churches, all three, have challenged you over the past few weeks? Sure, I'd be happy to. So, as you mentioned, the two churches in particular that you've seen some relevance with respect to grace, you had Ephesus and you had Pergamum. Um, I thought that Tim was right uh, in his articulation of the letter to the church at Ephesus, that they had really become in love with with knowledge to some extent, and knowledge without sort of working that out practically. There wasn't really a practical theology, if you will. They weren't loving people well. Um, and I mean, that was convicting to me personally. I love to read. I love knowledge. I love to fill my head with knowledge. <laughs> And I think that we're a community that largely appreciates that, that appreciates, uh, you know, the value of education and what that can bring. And uh, so the letter to the church at Ephesus, I, I think that, that I've just really been thinking about that for weeks. And there was one book that came to mind that I've read uh, multiple times at this point, and many, many believers have as well. And, and if you haven't, you should. And that's J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God. And he has a a paragraph in the very beginning that I just wanted to read that's kind of like the sort of thing that Pastor Tim was getting at. Um, he writes this in the preface. It says, In a preface to Christian theology, John McKay illustrated two kinds of interest in Christian things by picturing persons sitting on the high front balcony of a Spanish house watching travelers go by on the road below. The balconiers can overhear the travelers talk and chat with them, they may comment, comment critically on the way that the travelers walk, or they may discuss questions about the road, how it can exist at all or lead anywhere, what might be seen from different points along it, and so forth. But they are onlookers, and their problems are theoretical only. The travelers, by contrast, face problems which, though they have their theoretical angle, are essentially practical. Problems of the which way to go and how to make it type. Problems which call not merely for comprehension, but for decision and action, too. Balconeers and travelers may think over the same area, yet their problems differ. Thus, for instance, in relation to evil, the balconeer's problem is to find a theoretical explanation of how evil can consist with God's sovereignty and goodness. But the traveler's problem is how to master evil and bring good out of it. And to me, that's precisely the sort of thing that, that was good for me to think through over the past few weeks, how do I live out that 
theology that I'm filling my head with in a practical way. Again, not a knock on learning, but just a careful way of thinking through how does that work out practically on the day-to-day basis. Great stuff. Brian, I'm guessing it might have impacted you as well. Well, yeah, no, I, I think that that is rock solid stuff, uh, Adam. And and I hadn't, uh, it's been a long time since I read that book and I hadn't thought about it in those terms. But yeah, I, I, I think that for everybody, you know, one of the beauties of Bible study and as we read the Bible is, is that everybody uh, brings a different application from the same truth, right? And, uh, and what might be the problem area for me might not be the problem area for you. And, uh, and, but what, what he says here, though, it's very pointed uh, in all three of these churches that he's, he's talking to here. Um, uh, so, so, so he's very pointed in, in what he says that he, what he says that are good about the things, but then he says, yeah, but I hold these things against you too. And then each one of them, they have to play out a different way uh, of each church because they're all doing some things well, but then there's some things that they are weak in, and, and, uh, and Jesus draws attention to those things as well. So, yeah, it's very applicable to each person individually and perhaps even to each church individually as well. And all of us. So, okay, guys, so Brian, in the messages to the churches at Ephesus and Smyrna in particular, Jesus portrays himself, I'd say, pretty tamely. He's holding stars. He's walking among the golden lampstands. He says he's the first and the last who died and came to life. But then in this week's passage, in the opening, he says that he has the sword and he's evidently ready to use it, it looks like. So it, it seems like somewhat of a different portrayal of the Son of God than prior. What's going on here, do you think? Well, so there, there's a couple things, if I can just back up even from that a little bit, Bart. And as, as we read down through these, um, there, there's a couple things that stand out to me, just uh, overall as re- reading the passage. So who's he speaking to? He's not speaking to the church. He's speaking to the angel of each church which is an interesting concept in itself. He says, he says, and to the angel of the church of Ephesus and to the angel of the church in Smyrna and to the angel of the church in Pergamum, I write this. And, uh, and I don't, we're not going to do a deep dive into this, but you know, it is worthy to note, like, um, there is a, a spiritual force, uh, presence. Um, God calls them angels here in, in the scripture. Um, that they are they are overseeing the works that are taking place in in these different places and they're responsible perhaps for the works and God comes to them he doesn't say and to the church of he says and to the angel who is overseeing you know he says this and so that's number one and number two uh, look he says he says this about the church in Ephesus he says I know your works to the church in Smyrna, he says, I know your tribulation. To the church in Pergamum, he says, I know where you dwell. And I, Adam, I, to, to me, as I look at this, um, th- this term, I know, it, it, it is fearful and perhaps it's comforting at the same time. But to know that God sees. Mm-hmm. God knows, and He knows specifically, and He's about to address these these things specifically. But that's that's the first thing that stands out to, to me here about these passages. Number one, He's right. He writes to the to the angels about the places where they're overseeing. 
But number two, then to, to even your first point, he knows this mm-hmm. is this is an intellectual knowledge that God is totally aware of what's going on in these churches. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. And uh, I mean, the church at Smyrna, of course, they were they were in a position of great tribulation. And the Lord commends them for that and encourages them as that's going along. And yeah. uh, he speaks, he identifies himself in such a way that they would be encouraged in their tribulation. The words of the first and last who died and came to life. So even if they die, if they die for their faith, their hope is in Christ and they will be raised to new life just in the same way that Jesus was. Uh, in the <laughs> this last week in Pergamum, of course, you have a church who is rebuked because they are unwilling to confront, to confront the evil that's around them. And in fact, it had even infiltrated the church and they were unwilling to confront it. And you're right, Bart. I mean, what a difference in the way that he portrays himself as a sharp two-edged sword, the instrument of judgment. And of course, you know, I was among the children up in front afterwards wanting to see the <laughs> the five foot broadsword right, right. that that Pastor Tim used as an illustration, but it's so apt. I mean yeah. this is an instrument of judgment. I mean, you don't look at a sword and think, Oh, you know, what a what a cute, cuddly thing that is. It is an instrument of judgment. It was a way to kind of wake this church up to the fact of you need to root out this evil and get it out. And uh and you know, uh he right away goes straight to the heart of, of what that's going to look like. He portrays himself in that way to them because that's what they needed to hear. Yeah, and we, you know we see the two-edged sword and other references in Scripture too, uh, Bart. Where you know it says that the word of God is like a two-edged sword and it's right. able to pierce into the to the hearts of men, right? And then uh, your reference earlier, as you were talking about uh, Christ and how he portrays himself to a couple of the churches, but then he kind of portrays himself differently. But he says he's the first and the last. Well, that goes back. uh, Again, it's referenced in the end of Revelation where he says, I am the Alpha and Omega. Well, here he says, I'm the first and last. But that uh, same same context there, right? And he says, I am the one who walks among the lampstands, you know. Um, and, And really... Uh, revelation is all about the supremacy of Christ. And if we view this, these churches through that prism of who is the ultimate authority, well, you know, quite honestly, fellows, if I'm my own authority, if I set my own bar, mm-hmm. well, you know, I mean, who knows where it's going to land? And maybe it'll change depending on the day. But when we have the final bar, the final authority, who is Jesus? And by the way, he is the alpha. He is the omega. He is the one who walks amongst the lampstands. And then he also says eh, to, to, uh, to one of the churches here, he's, he's like, be careful because I might take your, your lamp out of the lampstands, right? That's right. And so it's, it's a little fearful. But, but to Smyrna, I, you know, as, as he was talking about this, he says, he says, I know your tribulation and your poverty. Mm. So again, he says, I, I know, I'm aware. I'm not blind to this. I see what's going on. But, but he says this, in, 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 all, in all three of these verses, he says, I know, and then he, he says what he knows, and then he uses the word but. Mm-hmm. In all three. And, uh, and, and he says, I know, I know of your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. 
I wonder how, you know, Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio, I wonder how Jesus, if he looked at us, how would he define us? Quite honestly, I think that we would fall maybe under this. Um, you know, we're not, I mean, we're certainly not poor uh, financially, but if you look around our congregation and what the giftedness of our population is, um, you know, we're pretty rich. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I can't think of too many other churches that probably have what we have to offer. Um, and, and sometimes we just think to ourselves, oh, oh, poor us. You know, what do we have to offer? We can't do much. You know, we, we're limited as to what we can do. I, I'm a little bit fearful of what Christ might say to us in regards of that looking at Smyrna in that, in that regard. And if I can just reiterate a conversation I had uh, after church on Sunday, uh, dear members of our church came up to me and we were talking through this. Actually, it was before the service started, I guess. And uh, we were talking about how good of a giving church we are. And we hold ourselves up sometimes as being a very strong giving church. And we've met budget and this and that. This particular individual was saying, I think if you looked at the people of grace, and this is not an admonishment, it is not at all an indictment, but I think we would probably have to say we are not a tithing church, probably. Mm. If we looked at, if we kind of made some assumptions and went through and our treasurer here at our church a number of years ago, about 10 years ago, I remember him coming to a meeting and saying, I've done a little analysis, made some assumptions, even if I'm 10 or 20% off, the results are telling. Hmm. If we were to be a tithing church, he said, our budget would probably be about three times what it is. Hmm. Point being, are we giving everything to Christ? Are Hmm. we really seeing who Christ is and saying, yeah, I want to be all in? Mm -hmm. So so let's move forward then. Uh, Jesus recognizes that the church in Pergamum had held fast to the truth of God and, and all the while not being as faithful to root out heresy. And there might have been any number of reasons. Could have been, excuse me, friends, family, fatigue, finances. I didn't mean to alliterate quite so much there. But (laughs) what do you see as some of the reasons a church that is otherwise faithful to God might not seek to do the hard work of of really addressing heresy, such as what the church at Pergamum experienced? Adam? Well, it's just hard. (laughs) It's a hard thing to do. you know, but it is something that we have to do. Looking at it from the perspective of a parent, you know, uh, sometimes it's easier to just kind of let things slide. And but then after a while, you have a mess on your hands. And uh, the Lord has given us the privilege of of parenting these kids in our home, and we have a responsibility to call them out when things aren't being done in the way that they should be done. If if they're doing it with the wrong sorts of attitudes. Uh, you know, by extension, when you talk about the church and you start to hear things that you think, ah, I don't, I don't know if that quite lines up with scripture. Um, sometimes the easiest thing to do is to just kind of say, well, I'm going to assume that they don't mean what they said and kind of let that slide rather than immediately going toward correction. I, I would hope that grace could be a church where, you know, we, ha- we have the educational bona fides to to really speak into, okay, well, that actually isn't that actually isn't what the scriptures say or how you should think about that scripture. But uh, the test for us is: Are we willing to 
speak out about those things, to confront heresy when it comes, and to do it in a way that really is loving. Brother, I, you know, I don't think that that is what that particular passage means. Let's talk about that, though. Really, let's talk about it. And I would hope that we would be in an environment here at Grace where that kind of conversation can happen. But it just seems to be the case that Pergamum was so uh, was a place where if the culture had so penetrated the church that it was getting harder and harder and harder to have those conversations every day. Yeah, and and I appreciate what you said. It's just hard, and and I think you know we've all served on the council of elders together and things of this nature. But there are just you know we live in a fallen world. We live in a sinful world. And sometimes there are just uh, things that come up or are obvious that we need to have those conversations, you know, with people because of sin or, you know, whatever the case may be. Every one of those conversations is difficult, and that's why I think it's it's one of the biggest reasons probably why we just, you know, let's just let it slide. Maybe it won't be so bad next time or whatever. Mm. And, And we find ourselves sliding and sliding and sliding. But one one of the things that um, I have noticed about having a difficult conversation is if you can have, if a person can have a difficult conversation with another person in humility with the ultimate ob- objective of God getting the glory on both, with, with both people, both, both, um, uh, both sides coming uh, at it from the same angle, humility and Let's give God the glory. There's never a bad ending to that conversation. Mm. If that's the objective, the the outright objective of both people. Right. But it is, it is a difficult conversation. Those things are difficult conversations. And when we see things like that uh, creeping in, it is difficult. And so your question was why Bart, why is it difficult? Well, so, you know, we say, well, I hate politics, right? Well, and it just so happens that in the church, there's even politics. Well, so maybe it's because a person has a, uh, um, a certain level of um, authority and we don't know, you know, should we, should we um, confront that? Or, you know, they're smarter than me. You know, their brain processor is faster than my brain processor. Uh, they have a faster... Um, uh, processing skills than I do. Maybe that person has more money, you know, and we don't want to offend the money giver, uh, you know. And so, I mean, that, th- those are just all things that come up in practical, practical ways. I think to answer the question why we don't want to be discomfort, uncomfortable. We don't want to betray a friendship or lose a friendship. We don't want to offend those who are who hold the money bags. You know, uh, there's all kinds of things, but that's some that come to mind. Mm-hmm. And when you say we look at Pergamum, uh, a lot of the things that were very proper and appropriate and welcomed in everyday life were those things that were antithetical to the Christian life. And so we see that even today where uh, uh, the world is calling black, white, or red, green, or yeah. whatever it might be, things that we know not to be true, but the world is saying it. And when we speak up against that, it does put us at a crossroads where we either have to separate or be willing to be separated from the world yeah. and be be castigated for those types of actions or uh, and, and stand firm 
Yeah. And when we're standing firm for God's word, uh, there may be some blowback on that. I don't know if you want to talk to that, Adam. I, the, the, to that end, I have some strong feelings and, and um, thoughts that I think are coming. It, he, he says here, when he's talking about the church of Pergamum, he says, I know where you dwell. You, you're where Satan's throne is. Well, we don't know uh, exactly where Satan's throne is, but what he's saying is, you guys are in the fire. You are, you are right in the, in the mix. And I think that um, uh, my, my belief is that God has been very gracious to the United States of America and that we have, the church has really for a couple centuries now been um, very open to, to stand firm on what we believe. I do believe that we can see that door starting to close a little bit because of some of the things that are coming into our society. And I always thought that it would be the, um, the homosexual issue that might really be the one that grabs the church. But I think society has leapt over that now even. And now we, I mean, the transgender issue is so big and it's so strong and it's so prevalent and pervasive. My goodness, we're dealing with it here in Cedarville, Ohio. Um, and the books that we find in our public libraries and things and what we see going on in our schools and uh, whatever. But um, you better rest assured that uh, this is going to come and the church is going to have to make a statement. They're going to have to make a stand. And I believe that when the church does, and when, when the society has moved on and the church says, no, we're standing here, I think that we're going to probably have to see some ramifications come out of uh, a church saying, no, regardless of what we're told to say or what we can't say, like they're being told in Canada right now. And there are pastors who are in, in jail right now in Canada um, because they've taken a stand on this very issue. It's just across the border and don't think we're not going to have to deal with it soon. And, um, you know, where Satan's throne is, right in the heat of the battle, he says, but you did a good job. You stood. Mm -hmm. Maybe you have some thoughts, Adam. I don't know. Well, I mean, it's election day today. I mean, one, a part of our civic duty, especially I think as believers, is to, uh, you know, participate. And we're in a representative democracy, and uh, we need to be aware of what's happening and be engaged in those ways and uh, vote our conscience. Mm -hmm. um, and that doesn't just mean, you know, blindly voting for you know, this candidate or that candidate or what, what have you, but actually being engaged, being aware and, uh, and doing our civic duty as, as, uh, citizens yeah. of America. Yes. But citizens of a, of a larger kingdom, we've been blessed to be in this country and, and we want to, uh, exercise our responsibility in doing that. Yeah. Well, let's, let's keep going down this thread. Tim shared this thought during his sermon. He said, the world system is systemically incompatible with God's ways. So let's ask the question, is it really possible to be a faithful and godly man, woman, boy, or girl in this world? Well, the absolute answer is yes. I'm I mean, glad you said that. Now let's flesh it out. <laughs> Well, I, I, yes, but I mean, we live in a in a fallen world. We live in a sinful world. We are fallen people. We we live in you know sin does impact each of us. I think the Apostle Paul, uh, it was him who said, "Hey, the things I don't want to do, I do. The things I I do want to do, I don't." You know, and I find great comfort in that. So, but the question is, well, is it possible to to be a godly person in a fallen world? Yes, we may stumble and fall along the way. But we, 
you know, we repent, we confess, we get back up and we get on that horse and we ride, you know, the, the, the truth of scripture. And I would, I would just come back and say, yeah, we're, we're living in a fallen world. However, what is the final authority? And this is where, you know, it just gets so mishy-moshy when people say, well, you know, I think, I don't really care what you think. I care what you believe. And if you, if you think something, well, that's okay. But if you believe something, that means it's found on something else. And that's got to be the word of God, which is the basis of all truth. It's the foundation of all truth. Mm-hmm. So we, we, come, we come back to that and, and say, there has to be a standard, a moral standard. What's right for you might not be right for them, whatever. No, what, what does the word of God have to say? And let's, let's live it. Yeah, I mean, in response to this, I would just say, as, as Brian has uh, so robustly affirmed, yes, it is possible, apparently, we're being commanded to live in this way. Uh, so in some ways, that's an encouragement. I mean, at first you think, oh, oh, oh man, that means I actually have to, to do this. Step I to, up, Adam. Yeah, that's exactly right. I have to do these things. Um, so there's an imperative there. But on the other hand, uh, we don't do it by just pulling up our bootstraps and doing it on our own. Uh, we do it in the Spirit's power. Um, you know, uh, in the Great Commission, he said, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He's right there among us, helping us, empowering us by his Spirit to carry out the things that he has called us to do. And for some people, that's hard. Uh, here in Cedarville, at times, it feels kind of easy for the most part. But for someone over in India or in a place where the, you know you have a hostile, more hostile environment that's actively hostile to believers, that's hard. That's a hard calling. But he is there with them in the same way that he's here with us, empowering us to to carry out the task to which he has called us. And don't you think though that that certainly we are called, <clears throat> excuse me, we are called to live out our lives. Uh, a heavy, heavy emphasis throughout John in particular and throughout the scriptures, uh, but uh, a heavy emphasis on love. And we are called to live lives that are filled with the Spirit, be filled with the Spirit, Paul says to the Ephesians in uh, Ephesians chapter 5. Is it possible that sometimes we're so worried, too worried about our freedoms and not worried enough about the gospel getting out? I look at the Church of China uh, that has grown tremendously ever since the Cultural Revolution back in the 1940s. Why did it grow? Was it in spite of or because of the oppression and the lack of freedoms that they had? And I'm certainly not wishing upon the United States lack of freedom. Uh, We, you know, we see in Timothy, Paul telling Timothy, hey, pray for the leaders so that you might live quiet and productive lives. And there's that idea of also, I think, being able to have free reign to share the gospel. But if we're more focused on our freedoms Mm -hmm. than we are on the love of God and on the the spread of the gospel, uh, I think we can catch ourselves there in a real bad way. Yeah. Well, one of the scariest things that you can pray is lord do whatever it takes do whatever it takes to to you know uh have your way in this place through the work of this church you know just do whatever it takes and uh we we lean into that but that might mean something hard might mean something other than what we would prefer and to that point i've prayed that concerning my children so let me go on to this next comment or next question for you guys 
Can you speak to the parents who are struggling, perhaps, to hold the line against this same kind of incrementalism that that uh, Jesus is talking to the people of the Church of Pergamum about? How do you encourage a parent today? Yeah, so you know, one of the things, of course, we are we are recent empty nesters. Uh, we just graduated our youngest off last year from high Ain't school. Ain't it great? Uh, I, I'm still deciding. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I'm I'm still kind of in a state of mourning. I don't know, but um, you know, I I would say this. I, I it, it took me far too long in my parenting to realize that um, what I say uh, to my children uh, really really makes a difference. They really hear it, and um, I would say. Uh, Dads, certainly moms, communicate with your children. Uh, they hear it. Your voice is loud. It's clear. They may, it may seem like they, um, uh, they, they may not agree with it. Maybe they, you know, fight against it and kick against it. But they're hearing, and I think that that just, we need to regularly speak into their into their lives and what's going on, what we're seeing in the world. I, I think if I had it all to do over again, I would be a much better verbal communicator um, with my kids than what I was. But um, you, you asked, how can how can we? Okay, so communicate and then intentionally. Can I, can I interrupt you there, oh, Brian, sure. too? I think it would be good to point out, and I know you know this and you agree, communication is communication. It's not just speaking. It's also listening. And yeah. I've learned that yeah. the hard yeah. way. Not just saying what I know to be true, and you listen to me and do this, and it'll be fine. Right. But I need to understand what they're going through. Sure. So listening, go ahead. Sure. Well, the last thing that I'll turn it over to to Adam, but um, and that is to intentionally communicate. What am I communicating to them? You know, am I reading the scripture? Are I am I uh, looking at the world through the lens of scripture do do you know am i speaking to these things you know how would god process has jesus talked about this you know what does the bible have to say uh th those are things you know besides just regular times in scripture with them but adam you've done a great job with this with you're doing a great job with this with your kids well i don't i don't know about that but i mean one thing that we've learned uh for sure and we've really tried to lean into as our kids have grown and I mean, our kids are still fairly young, you know, I mean, we have two 12 year olds, a 10 year old and a seven year old right now. Um, is you know the, what that means, Adam? Next year they're 13. Ah, uh, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> and we're starting to sense some of that, some of that independent spirit and pushback. Uh, but like you said, Brian, having these moments of intentionality, having kind of an expectation that you're going to be having these conversations. Mm -hmm. And for us, it's been really the breakfast table and the dinner table have become venues that the kids expect that we're going to talk about the word of God, that we're going to talk about cultural issues. I mean, I didn't think that I never had, I, I never had to sit around the table with my parents and talk about that. There really are two genders oh, yeah. and, <laughs> or what inflation is or mm -hmm. things like this but those are conversations that I, we do have with our kids and at the same time leaning into scripture reading scripture having scripture just be the expectation around those times of having you know 
our physical needs met through nourishment and food, also having those spiritual needs met through kind of thinking together about the Word of God and about how that impacts the way we engage the culture around us. Yeah. So, so Bar, I would just come back and say one of the biggest mistakes that Christian men, dads have, make is that, oh, um, the church will build into them. They, they go to youth group. They go to children's ministry, whatever. I, they don't need me to speak into it. And that is just, men, please hear me from my heart. Communicate intentionally with your children. There is nobody that can talk to, to them, nobody that has the voice that you have into their lives. Yeah, amen. And if I could add just one more thing. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, honor your husbands. Make sure that you are keeping that relationship first. They will watch that. Yeah. They know what you are believing by the way you treat each other. Mm. Yeah. Guys, there's an awful lot more we can talk about in regards to the uh, message to the church or the angel, as you've pointed out, at Pergamum. And we're going to uh, we'll, we'll hold that over to another time. But Brian Hansen and Adam Hammett have been my guests for this episode of Digging Deeper in Grace. And you can access Grace sermons and podcast episodes on demand by visiting gracecedarville.org on the World Wide Web and clicking the Media tab. We also encourage you to share your questions and comments with us each week by emailing them to contact at gracecedarville.org. That's contact at gracecedarville.org. Plan to join us next time. We'll continue our discussion of God's Word and wrap up our study of Revelation chapter 2, getting ready for Revelation chapter 3. And until we meet again, I'm your host, Bart Sheridan, thanking you for tuning into this episode of Digging Deeper in Grace. Digging Deeper in Grace is a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Visit us online at gracecedarville.org and join us next time as we continue our discussion. In the meantime, we invite you to continue digging deeper in grace as you read God's Word.